0: Well, good Good evening, evening, uh, ladies and uh, gentlemen. Uh, I want to welcome you to this public forum on uh, the future of Antarctica. I um, want to mention that and to remind you that we meet uh, on the lands of the Gadigal people um, who uh, records show uh, lived here continuously for uh, some 40,000 years. We've been here... Or not much more than 200 uh, as occupiers. I um, wanted to thank um, Meredith uh, Hall of Sydney Ideas for helping to put this together, um, who's up the top. Uh, <laughs> also to, to Zoe Morrison, who um, handled impeccably all of the arrangements. Uh, I want to thank the Academy of the Social Sciences uh, in uh, Australia. And I want to welcome you to the oldest um, lecture theatre in Australia, uh, which is pretty formidable. um, And I hope none of you suffer vertigo. Um, There are, I think, uh, forums on Antarctica, certainly at this university and, and in Sydney, are rare. Um, they haven't happened for quite some time. I think there is a sense of uh, excitement about this subject, and I can see three reasons, uh, or I think that there were three reasons for putting this forum together. Um, you'll recognize all of these. First of all, if you look back at the um, first, uh, the records of the first sighting uh, by European eyes of... Uh, Antarctica, you will find that all the imagery of Antarctica is full of imperial hubris, uh, the whole idea of a race, of conquest, uh, and a sense that this highest and driest of continents um, is something like Nullius.
1: D- nothing exists
0: there, and it's for we human beings to occupy and to master and to control. Um, many of the images... Uh, interestingly, um, were uh, riddled with machismo. Let me quote to you uh, Admiral Richard Byrd, the first man American ever to fly over the South Pole. At the bottom of this planet, Planet. he wrote, is an enchanted continent in the sky, pale like a sleeping princess, sinister and beautiful, she lies in frozen slumber. Uh, And it was only a step from there to think about uh, conquest of of her. What I think is interesting, first point, is that something like um, a 180-degree shift in uh, human perceptions of this continent is taking place. It is coming to be seen as fragile, as vulnerable, um, as actually uh, a place that we could render terra nullius that we could uh, we could destroy it and uh, this I think is uh, is the background um, to um, this uh, public forum the, 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 there are many forces driving uh, that uh, shift which uh, perhaps we'll talk about um, uh, tonight second reason is that when you start to look at the governing institutions of this continent um, it is a strange, uh, it's a strange political space. Um, you might think that Europe has a monopoly on acronyms. Um, uh, there are many, many confusing acronyms to describe um, the multiple institutions. It's a strange continent, there's no standing army, there's no standing police force, uh, there's no state in any recognizable sense, uh, there's no judiciary, there's no taxation collection agency, there's no national anthem, uh, there's no flag And yet, a whole series of institutions has been, political and legal institutions, uh, has been invented to govern this continent. Um, And there are many odd and unusual things. I think it's uh, a reason, a second reason, for taking uh, Antarctica seriously in this public forum. For instance, that uh, scientists have played something like the role of citizens, In uh, being uh, the champions of the Antarctic Treaty system and continue to play a very important public uh, scrutiny role in um, the uh, governing of uh, the continent. It's a place where many important things are happening in scientific terms. It's a place, as I think Gillian Triggs will uh, mention uh, uh, in her comments, where actually the whole doctrine of sovereignty, the belief that states are the prime actors, territorial states, and they ought to be able to control unconditionally uh, their territory, doesn't in fact um, exist in pure form in Antarctica. There are many other institutions a parliament, the ATCM, and there are of course uh, organizations such as Sea Shepherd uh, that are active um, in uh, in the governing of this continent and one odd a uh, uh, feature still on the second point is that many decisions are made at a distance um, globally that directly impact on Antarctica. For example, um, the conservation of albatrosses and petrels. There is actually a, a body, that a governing body, that uh, globally that deals with this, that um, impacts directly on uh, Antarctica. Third and final reason, I would say that uh, looking at the press, looking at taking the temperature of public uh, opinion, there is rising interest in Antarctica and there is, I would say, rising anxiety about uh, its future. What are the sources of this anxiety? The sense that the original signatories to the Treaty of 1959 are beginning to make noises about the need to occupy their share of claimed Antarctica territory that's going on in Australia. Um, Some are even saying, just crudely, we've claimed 40% and it's time that we started to um, put this claim into uh, action. There is, despite the Madrid Protocol, which protects the, the continent until 2048 against mining and so on, there is a sense that this could go the way of the Arctic. There are important uh, deposits of iron ore, of coal, um, uh, natural gas. There is a sense that, um, climatically speaking, uh, worrying things are going on. Certainly a rise in temperatures, um, and certainly if you look at the uh, uh, the Larsen B. uh, collapse uh, in In recent years, some sense that the uh, parts of the ice may be melting. There is a worry about growing numbers of tourists. There is a sense that the institutions, the governing institutions, are not properly representative. Uh, And uh, there is a sense that um, too many things are being decided behind closed doors. And so a public forum on Antarctica seems to me to be um, an important uh, contribution to opening up Uh, the secrets of government Antarctica we have tonight um, an apology from Robin Eckersley who is so ill uh, with uh, some viral uh, flu that she couldn't fly from Melbourne and is um, uh, is heartbroken uh, not to be here it's one of her uh, 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 topics about which she's passionate so um, do think of Robin Eckersley Um, we have um, three speakers uh, Professor Gillian Treeks, welcome back Gillian to the university, the president of uh, now the Australian Human Rights Commission. Uh, someone who has been involved um, for decades in international law, international human rights law, um, has explained to me that her brief at the commission is to try to map and to uh, more intelligibly implement uh, international rights Uh, obligations into um, domestic Australian law. Um, She, at a very early point, uh, wrote um, on the subject of Antarctica, I think, uh, a first book in the middle of the 1980s um, on international law and the question of Australia and sovereignty uh, uh, in Antarctica, and recently more recently a very fine book on legal and env- environmental challenges um, uh, facing uh, the continent um, welcome Gillian. Um, Bob Brown um, I'd also like to welcome back uh, as a son of the University of, uh, of Sydney also the son of a, c- a country policeman um, uh, uh, some of you will know uh, first um, elected to the Senate in 1996 served three terms Um, recently retired but not at all active, something of a model of of, uh, what one does in in one's sixties. A man who uh, uh, I think it's fair to say Uh, uh, earned the love of many millions of Australian citizens during his time in politics for his integrity. A man who spent time in prison, who fasted on mountains, uh, who came out um in the early 70s when it was dangerous to do so uh in this country so yes <laughs> uh, and uh, who has played a central role in uh, the red green government uh, until his departure um, mm. a few months ago um, a government, government that for whatever you think uh, about it and its future uh, has actually um thanks to um, bob brown's and the green support has actually um, mm-hmm. Been responsible for the biggest infrastructure investment in the history of the country, national broadband, and um, has done things like extending dental care to um, several million young Australians. Jeff Hansen. Uh, Jeff Hansen is, um, uh, I know, a qualified electronic and, uh, and computer engineer, um, uh, a man who uh, uh, cut his teeth at sea. Steve Irwin, I think, uh, in 2007-2008, yep. uh, in the Antarctic Whale uh, Defense Campaign, which was called Operation Migaloo. That's right. Um, he uh, showed some flair for that role. Uh, extremely dangerous. Uh, go on YouTube and, or have a look at um, the Sea Shepherd website and you'll see what's involved
1: uh, I haven't got the guts to do it I, I have to I confess. confess here on the spot. that's why I'm a professor sir. you'd be surprised <laughs> uh, born in Melbourne uh, now living in Perth uh, um,
0: uh, someone who takes seriously his his green politics and who is uh, now uh, beginning to be involved in a campaign in the northwest uh, of Australia uh, around uh, a very large project um, uh, championed by Woodside. The ground rules tonight, civility, uh, of course. Uh, we're going to have, uh, we're going to stay here. Jeff is going to show some, some slides, um, but we're going to do a kind of you know, television um, uh, uh, chat uh, show format. And we're going to begin with, uh, with Gillian Treats. Welcome, Gillian.
2: Thank you very much. Well, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a huge pleasure to be on the panel with both these very distinguished speakers. Um, and a great pleasure for me to be back at the University of Sydney. Uh, I left seven weeks ago to take up my new position. And uh, it's wonderful to be back in the smells of a university, <laughs> the uh, the wonderful uh, variety of community that we serve in a university. It's just great to be back. But my head is full, I must say, of asylum seekers and the Roo, of marriage equality and all of the issues that the commission is dealing with. But it's a great pleasure for me to come back to a subject that I started with um, in the uh, in the middle of the 70s when I started my really? PhD. And um, I began as an international lawyer uh, with an interest in a subject that my... Um, PhD supervisor, Ellie Latterpark at Cambridge, said, do something practical, Julian, do something that will really relate the principles of international law to a major global problem that will be a bigger problem as the decades go by. And that was good advice, because what I did was to start that thesis on the uh, means by which states acquire territory, and in particular, uh, what is the legal basis for the claims to territory in Antarctica and you will all know that Australia claims 42% of the Antarctic Territory and the the question that was important then and remains important is to what extent can that and other the other six territorial claims in Antarctica be um, uh, validated under the principles of international law. Now I only have um, uh, five or so minutes to speak so the question for me is where where on earth do I start and I thought I might start with with perhaps a controversial point that may be a little difficult to understand. So I'll start with the point and then see if I can justify what it is I want to say. And that point is that by maintaining the territorial claim to Antarctica, Australia both protects its own interests as well as the international community interests. Now, there'll be many people here tonight who will find that a bizarre uh, idea, um, that sovereignty in this pristine, beautiful world uh, in Antarctica is um, an unthinkable concept and one that uh, is a dated uh, 18th and 19th century idea based on principles that are proving of very little value, uh, and one have some sympathy with that view, particularly if you look at the territorial and maritime claims uh, disputes in the South China Sea at the moment. So that was the legal context in which I was operating, but in the years since I've worked in this area, I have come to see the Antarctic Treaty System, which has evolved as probably one of the most successful uh, models for peace and science and uh, orderly management in the global environment that has really ever occurred. And it begins right at the beginning in the Cold War, in the, in the uh, early in the 50s, but ultimately agreement uh, uh, achieved in Washington by 12 states uh, to create the Antarctic Treaty in 1959, the very year uh, that Castro uh, gained control of Cuba, if you want to put it in context, mm. the critical point being that it was the Cold War. Mm. This was a very, very dangerous time, politically, uh, in the international legal environment, Um, and apart from the uh, outer space, which was to be conquered later, up to a point, uh, the Antarctica was um, an area where there were disputed claims, uh, but where there was thought to be potential mineral resources. And... Because of the success, historically, of the International Geophysical Year that some of you in this room may remember, and I certainly recall it as a child, uh, the success of that year in promoting science, there was an attempt, particularly led by the Americans, to achieve uh, a compromise that would respect existing claims to sovereignty, but which would allow some form of governance in achieving global community interests. At that time, there were seven claimants in Antarctica, the United Kingdom, Chile, France, Norway, and Argentina, uh, with Australia and New Zealand claiming derivative uh, claims through the United Kingdom, and non-claimants, Belgium, Japan, South Africa, uh, the United States, and the USSR. And those 12 states agreed on this very elegant and very simple treaty. For those of you who look at treaties these days, you'll see that multilateral agreements are very complex, very detailed arrangements, uh, perhaps the the framework on climate change and the Kyoto Protocol and all that flows. These are very complicated multilateral agreements. The Antarctic Treaty is very simple, very clear. It's a zone of peace and of science uh, and it is uh, held together by something perhaps only lawyers will really appreciate, but this is the miraculous Article 4. And what this article does is to achieve the compromise. What it does is to recognise... Uh, that uh, the, the treaty will not prejudice existing claims to sovereignty, so that looks after the seven. It will not prejudice the five other members of, of the treaty uh, if they refuse to recognize territorial claims, and it would uh, respect those states which have a potential right to make a claim in the future, in particular the United States and the Soviet Union, which have probably done more exploration than any other state. So by this Article 4 was created um, a mechanism by which the uh, basic principles of non-militarization, peaceful uh, scientific exchange, uh, no jurisdictional exercise uh, by any one state other than over its own nationals, uh, was created and what happened in the following years as the cold war uh, moved on it became possible to protect seals to create an antarctic marine living resources convention to agree on mining originally and i was very privileged to be on the australian delegation doing what we thought was the best thing to do to protect mining by a very stringent um, uh, um, antarctic scientific um, assessment process only to find that our prime minister mr hawke Simply decided one day that mining under any terms and circumstances was unacceptable, and he turned the whole negotiating team around and said the minerals convention is no longer appropriate. And as a minority of one, Australia went out and attempted to achieve what ultimately became the Madrid Protocol the uh, moratorium on minerals. Uh, uh, exploitation with, at that time, the assistance of France, and slowly states came on board. A very interesting example on how a single right idea can ultimately uh, draw the majority with it. But with that, we've also seen um, other linked processes uh, being created, and slowly an organizational structure being created. Initially, the parties wanted nothing by way of governance and structure, other than through the jurisdiction of the state over its nationals. Uh, But finally, um, we have now a quite complex Antarctic treaty system, which has achieved many of its objectives. Um, Now, what about the future? Uh, How will that system survive into the future? It uh, manages all sorts of values. Um, It's it's been successful in preventing um, exploitation thus far. Um, It has been successful in uh, ensuring that science remains free, that access continues to it. Um, it's managed quite a sophisticated process of environmental protection and regulation, um, and it's achieved a really unprecedented levels of collaboration. Now there are, I think, 44 parties, I understand to be corrected, but about 44 parties to the Antarctic Treaty system. It's been a remarkable in the level of success. But for those of you, perhaps who are younger, who are coming at this for the first time, you might look at it and say, this is a very weak organisation. It's not really achieving anything in relation to uh, whaling, uh, 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 endless breaches of the rules, uh, no serious capacity to regulate um, the tourist industry, uh, and uh, it has all round uh, very little organisational structure. Uh, Voting is by consensus. It looks to be a very inadequate organisational structure. And one um, example of that uh, is the Humane Society case that you will know about in relation to whaling in the Southern Ocean in what is technically the Australian uh, Antarctic uh, Australian uh, Exclusive Economic Zone of its Antarctic claims now one of the things that article 4 uh, prevents you from doing is making any new claims but one argument is that by claiming an exclusive economic zone off the Australian Antarctic Territory, uh, we were simply keeping up with the advances in the development of international law. The critical point I want to make in relation to whaling, and I'm sure others will start to talk about this in more detail later, is that technically the Australian legislation, of course, applies because if we if we are serious about our claim to territorial sovereignty, our legislation and the um, uh, the Bio- Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act will apply there. And in relation to Japanese whaling, there was an attempt to apply it through the federal court. Um, Initially, the first judge refused to apply the legislation on the grounds that it was a useless exercise. It was futile. It was moot, if you like to use that word. But he was overturned by the full court of the federal court in Australia that said, no, the legislation on its its face applies and we will apply it against Mm. the Japanese ships that are uh, whaling illegally in the Exclusive Economic Zone of Australia. Uh, However, uh, despite that full-court judgment, the government decided not to enforce the uh, injunction against the companies uh, for diplomatic and and reasons of of high uh, diplomatic uh, politics. (laughs) Uh, But the the point and the reason I want to mention it, uh, and as, as I say, probably others will as well, is that this was the first time that Australia has asserted the full impact of its territorial claim in the area. But the risk in doing so and this was the perception of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the risk in doing so, it it was that it potentially could blow open a system that has been enormously successful since 1959. In other words, um, the Japanese could immediately say, well, you have no territorial sovereignty in Antarctica, you have no right to extend your jurisdiction to this area over a non-national, clearly you can do it in relation to your own nationals, um, and therefore the risk was too great. But Australia has nonetheless decided to take the quite courageous position in bringing Japan before the International Court of Justice in the whaling case, Uh, but it's been cleverer than applying it in the context of the Exclusive Economic Zone and has done so in the context of high seas fishing in the Southern Oceans, uh, controlled, managed through the Whaling Convention. So we are now waiting to see what view the International Court will take uh, in terms of the Um, allegations by Australia that Japan has breached numerous international laws but in in particular uh, has uh, breached the fundamental provisions of the Whaling Convention in which there is a moratorium Um, and uh, uh, breached various provisions of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea in relation to marine management and so on. Uh, My own view is that Japan is a serious abuse of its obligations under that Convention but I mention it to demonstrate if we're talking in this tonight about the future political management. Um, We've had a fragile but nonetheless effective organizational structure to manage Antarctica um, since 59. But now we're moving into an area where we need to look at other considerations, how to manage fisheries, how to manage whaling, how to deal with tourism, uh, and to deal with the uh, persistent threat that some states will want to open up Antarctica for uh, uh, exploration uh, and exploitation of minerals resources. So those are the threats. Uh, I'm optimistic and believe that were we to stay with the Antarctic Treaty system as a global community, we will actually achieve wider values through maintaining that system uh, than we will if we expose um, the inadequacies of the of the sovereignty claims to the extent that they are inadequate, um, uh, we run a great risk by 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 moving away from it. And I hope that that provides a controversial basis for the speakers. Thank you very
3: much. Paul <laughs> <laughs> Brown.
4: Well, uh, thank you. Um, thank you, everybody. And I want to thank Julian at the outset. That's the best exposition on. The laws uh, governing Antarctica and the shortcomings of them that I've ever heard. Mm. Thank you very much, Gillian. Thank you. Um, And I I won't uh, repeat that, I'll just build on it because one of the things, as a. I first just should say that I sat in this lecture room in 1962, so um, I at least go back a a little of its history. Uh, And shortly after that, when I graduated, uh, became a locum at Wentworthville and was silly enough to uh, stick with that job at Wentworthville when through came a letter, delayed letter, uh, inviting me to be a doctor in the next Antarctic season uh, on Antarctica. Um, So I didn't go, and I haven't been, and I'm very happy not to have been to Antarctica because I think the pressure of uh, humanity Gillian mentioned uh, tourism on Antarctica is going to be not the biggest but one of the great factors that's going to be difficult to mention in uh, to manage in this century. Antarctica, I'm from Hobart of course and um, it's one of the great centres of Antarctic study, scientific wealth in the world, if not the greatest. Uh, It's the only place on earth where you can go and see krill that are artificially... um, well they're in a tank there swimming around, these amazing little creatures which uh, when they have their efflorescence in spring and this is why the whales go south uh, suddenly create a mass which is greater than even the uh, extraordinary herd uh, that competes with them on the planet that's seven billion human beings in weight Uh, and uh, it's there and feeds the whole system and what I didn't know until I spoke to the Antarctic scientists was that uh, it also, the Antarctic currents feed all the other oceans in the world, including the North Atlantic. Uh, The nutrients are are coming from Antarctica and the weather systems are affected right around the world by Antarctica and it's very daunting indeed to hear the impact of climate change where the West Antarctic Peninsula is warming uh, faster than the rest of uh, the planet generally Uh, and and fifteen years ago British scientists were saying we're actually accreting ice in Antarctica. That's all gone now and the threat of Antarctica melting would mean that we'd be very lucky indeed if uh, the East Antarctic ice sheet was to follow the West Antarctic ice sheet some centuries from now to have our feet dry in this lecture theatre here on the hill at the uh, university. I don't know what the altitude here is but if it's less than 65 metres above current sea level we'd be in real trouble. So um, there's a lot uh, we need to do in protecting Antarctica, and one of the um, ways of adding to perhaps the vulnerability of the uh, treaty system that so wondrously came into place in 1959, and I remember that uh, as well, Gillian, and uh, was uh, is um, perhaps uh, the aspirations of a much more vigorous global environment movement back in the 70s and 80s for Antarctica to become a world park and in the 70s the World Heritage Convention was uh, created Uh, in 1972 it actually came into being with enough signatory countries in 1975 and there are now nearly 1000 World Heritage properties, most of them cultural uh, but all of them uh, observed. Uh, Some are in threatened, like our own Great Barrier Reef, by the current uh, unseemly rush for uh, fossil fuels to be exported, processed, and exported in the w- in the World Heritage area of the Great Barrier Reef. But, but in the main, uh, this is a highly respected convention which binds uh, humanity in wanting to protect its cultural and natural heritage for the good of everybody. And uh, Why not Antarctica? Here is the most brilliant wild continent with the most massive herds of uh, wild birds um, and with its Antarctic uh, Peninsula and Islands um, mammals and the whales uh, on the planet. Uh, Obviously the, the creme de la creme of World Heritage properties without a World Heritage listing. One of the things that World Heritage Listing does, it gives through the United Nations the ability for some um, uh, protection. Uh, um, for example, what do we do if uh, some nation in the near future... Well, Barnaby Joyce was successful with a future government in Australia and we sent uh, mining ships south, uh, protected perhaps by naval attendants, to uh, exploit Antarctica ag- against the tenets of the Antarctic Treaty. Who's there to stop it? Julian might be able to uh, give me some reassurance but I don't have any at the moment. The World Heritage Convention uh, however would give a clearer means for the United Nations uh, and over 180 countries of the United Nations have signed the World Heritage Convention to uh, become involved, directly involved. Uh, As you know Uh, uh, the United Nations does become involved in in disputes uh, between us human beings when I uh, uh, proceeded to uh, push this in the National Parliament uh, and by the way I also salute Bob Hawke and the vigorous community uh, that was behind that change of tack back in uh, the late 80s which led to Antarctica becoming a uh, through the Madrid protocol becoming free of mining uh, into um, for half a century and even then it would take two thirds of the uh, treaty nations to sign off on a change to that after the year 2048. So ostensibly this protection agreed to there um, and one of the last people to sign that uh, was President George Bush Senior uh, and uh, the American government was one of the last to come on board if not the last, uh, to have that brought into law. With World Heritage uh, Convention I was told by a bank of senior bureaucrats in the Prime Minister's office uh, not much more than 12 months ago that uh, we couldn't do it. It wasn't legally possible. So I produced uh, Professor Don Rothwell's uh, draft opinion that it was very much legally possible. That under the World Heritage Convention uh, claimant nations could uh, nominate their section. However, uh, that's not a good option because uh, you want everybody to be going with this. But there is provisions under the World Heritage Convention for uh, cross-border or, or multi parties of a property, properties which uh, um, involve many jurisdictions to jointly and unanimously put forward a World Heritage nomination and that's the process that should be approached through the Antarctic Treaty Organisation now in Australia and amongst the bureaucracy there's this huge feeling that if we do that we'll rattle the cage, we'll upset people well if you upset people when you do that then withdraw from it but for goodness sake suck it and see have a go at it because uh, world, th- this is the premier natural asset left on this planet and it ought to have that top status, recognised uh, by pretty well every country on the planet. That will give it a long-term protection that uh, is very dubious at the moment. So uh, there we go. Uh, That's the next step. uh, If you ask me in protecting uh, the uh, extraordinary common heritage that we have in Antarctica, but we need uh, an Australian government that's going to do it. Now, curiously enough, it was Labour Party policy uh, up until the 2007 election. When I pressed this with Peter Garrett, then Minister for the Environment, he said it's no longer our policy, and it was dropped from Labour policy. But curiously, due to a motion in the Senate from the Greens earlier this year, we find that the current coalition has it as policy that this should be explored. Now, I'm not advocating that people vote for Tony Abbott or for uh, Barnaby Joyce at the next election. But I cite that just simply to say that um, they know where popular feeling is in this country. And uh, it's something that uh, I I think needs a a great deal more exploration, because we are dealing here with a continent that's no longer remote and distant. Mm. It affects everything on the planet. And uh, I'd like to finally say, um, uh, Gillian's already said this, that what Japan is doing in uh, the putative Australian jurisdiction uh, down south is illegal. And uh, I don't want to trespass on what Jeff may say, but here's a curious thing about Australia's craven attitude to this Japanese whaling fleet. And uh, we have pictures taken by our naval ships in the drawer of the Minister for the Environment in Canberra, which they won't bring out and show to television, because on a question, I finally got this through Freedom of Information, it makes Tokyo, and here's the word, angry that those pictures were taken of them slaughtering the whales. So we don't show anybody. Uh, We've got a suppressed political uh, uh, government in uh, Canberra that should do better than that. Uh, um, however, Captain Paul Watson from Sea Shepherd has been down there with uh, great, um, a great international cruise to try to police this illegal behaviour. And he's on the run. He's had to uh, go... Inc- he's incognito somewhere now because Japan is tracking him down to put him in solitary confinement for many years in a jail in Japan uh, because he's had the effrontery to call them for their illegal behaviour. Uh, it's time we got a bit more gumption out of our politicians in Canberra on a on a number of things but uh, in particular in heading to in Australia taking a, a Bob Hawkeian lead again in having Antarctica become the World Park, the World Heritage Area that it indubitably should be. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Bob. Uh, Jeff, yep. welcome.
5: Thanks uh, Bob and Jillian, it's never an easy act to follow up um, Bob Brown and Jillian you were exceptional, it was a great speaker, we enjoyed hearing it. Thank you. I was, um, I'm a bit off tangent here but I thought I'd give you a bit of background into Sea Shepherd which I was asked to give and then talk a bit about Antarctica as well <coughs> and what we've seen down there and, uh, and I guess some of the uh, laws and that we've been up against. Uh, first I'll, I'll start with Sea Shepherd. A young man was out on the Canadian ice with Greenpeace, trying to put a stop to the world's largest marine mammal slaughter, called the Canadian seal hunt, where up to 350,000 seals were to be slaughtered just for their pelts. This young man was the youngest founding member of Greenpeace, and he saw a sealer about to basically club and skin a baby harp seal while its mother was would be sitting there and watching. And he took it upon himself to jump in and intervene and wrestle that club off that sealer and throw it into the ice. Well, Greenpeace thought that that was a bit too violent. So they voted him out of Greenpeace. And uh, that young man was Paul Watson. And he started the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. We're a non profit marine conservation organization who has been operating on the high seas since 1977 under the command of our captain, Paul Watson. Back in the days of piracy, it was not the British Navy that shut down pirates in the Caribbean, although the governments were on the take from the pirates. It was Captain Henry Morgan, a pirate. So we have a saying, if you want to stop pirates, you need pirates to do it. So we're pirates of compassion, going after pirates of profit and greed in the high seas. Our fleet of ships include the Steve Allen, the Bob Barker, and the Richard Bardot. And they fly a similar sort of look and feel of the Jolly Roger, where instead of the crossbones we have Neptune's trident and a shepherd's star. And this symbolises our flock that we represent, being the great whales, whales, dolphins, sharks, turtles, seals, right down to the plankton. They are our clients, that's who we represent. Sea Shepherd is not a protest organisation, which means if you know something's wrong or illegal, You do something about it, you intervene. You see a woman being bashed on the street or a dog being kicked, you don't just stand by and watch, you actually get in and do something about it. However, in our 35 years of operation, we've never caused a single serious injury and we've never been convicted of a felony, yet we've saved the lives of countless marine life. Our anti-poaching direct action campaigns are guided by the United Nations World Charter for Nature, which gives non-government organisations and individuals the authority to uphold international conservation law and we have actually proven that in a court of law in Canada. Our campaigns range from protecting baby harp seals in Canada to the critically endangered bluefin tuna in the Mediterranean Sea to patrolling the Faroe Islands against the pilot of slaughter to trying to put an end to the taji dolphin slaughter in Japan and to our Antarctic Wild defense campaigns which we are most well known for here in Australia. We also have a permanent presence in the Galapagos Marine Reserve where we actually work with the local police and the Rangers in a bid to stamp out the illegal poaching of sharks. I may note that on the Galapagos I was there last September and it's interesting to see the effect that tourism has had in the Galapagos. Uh, There's so much. I was expecting to go there and see a, a park office and maybe a sea shepherd office and a handful of tourists coming and going, but there's 15,000 people there that are legal, 15,000 people that are legal, they're bringing cats, dogs, plants, and in the main island I saw plastic and rubbish all just being thrown in fishing nets and lines. So tourism can have a definite impact on the environment if it's not managed properly. Back to the Galapagos on sharks. We've lost 98% of the world's shark's populations due to the demand for shark fin soup. Sharks are caught by long lines up to 80 kilometres long. They're brought on board, their fins cut off and they're thrown back in the ocean and often they're still alive. Sharks have been keeping our oceans healthy for over 450 million years. Every species with under them has, a shape, has evolved with their shape, their colour, their speed with the sharks being that top apex predator. We actually owe our existence to the sharks and we need to give them the respect that they deserve. As a non-profit organisation, Sea Shepherd relies on its volunteers. We don't spend any money on advertising. In fact, volunteers do most of our work. We have 15 outreach chapters around Australia that are on no commission. They give up their weeknights and weekends to raise funds and awareness for Sea Shepherd. And the majority of our ships, international crew, including Japanese, which I believe are our bravest crew members who come down to Antarctica to oppose the Japanese whaling Fleet, are volunteers, all taking time away from their loved ones to put their lives on the line to protect our oceans. In Australia, we only have, only have four staff, and they work out of a donated office, which means that when people donate, the money goes straight towards our direct action campaigns. In Australia we are most well known for our Antarctic wild defence campaigns. As the Antarctic summer arrives and the ice begins to melt, there's a massive life-boom, as Bob, Bob spoke about before, with this Antarctic krill. It's one of the most beautiful places on Earth. And after the long migration that takes them past our beautiful Australian coasts, the most intelligent and socially complex creatures, our mammal cousins, the greatest minds in the ocean, also arrived, the great whales, for their main source of food, Antarctic krill. However, they are not alone. Each Antarctic summer, the Japanese whaling fleet sets sail for the Antarctic Southern Ocean whale sanctuary with a mission to kill 1,035 whales. They are hunting an endangered species in violation of a global moratorium on commercial whaling, they are hunting in an established whale century in violation of the Antarctic Treaty sorry, in violation of the Australian Federal Port ruling. and they also refuel their vessels south of 60 degrees which is also in violation of the Antarctic Treaty. The whaling fleet comprises of up to nine vessels, three harpoon, one factory processing ships and the way that they operate is a factory vessel will come into an area, the harpoon vessels will scatter and they go on the hunt. And we've seen whales swimming 16-17 <coughs> knots trying to get away from these harpoon ships ducking and weaving trying to escape them and then they come up exhausted with last breath before they're hit with an explosive harpoon. Now these whales can take anything up to an hour to die, there is simply no humane way to kill a whale. Rather than go after every vessel, we've found our most effective tactic is to simply go for the factory vessel, is to block the transfer of whales. If we can get on that factory vessel, which is the one you see in the background there, and we can block them from being able to transfer the dead whales, then they can't load live whales. That tactic has been very effective, so much so that last year we saved over 700 whales and the year before that we saved over 800. We have reduced the entire Japanese whaling industry to a welfare welfare project surviving only because of massive government subsidies now. We have also exposed their illegal activities to the entire world through our campaigns being televised on whale wars. And most importantly of all our achievements is the fact that over 4,000 whales continue to swim in our oceans and come past that beautiful Australian coast that we can enjoy simply because of our actions. So do the laws and treaties of Antarctica stack up? The Antarctic Treaty stipulates that Antarctica can be used for peaceful purposes only and and to exclude weapons. However, Sea Shepherd has witnessed armed Japanese Coast Guard operating in Australian waters. And I personally have had armed Japanese Coast Guard throwing concussion grenades at me while in Australian waters. In fact, one occasion I was standing next to Captain Paul Watson on the bridge wing when he was shot. And luckily he was wearing a Kevlar vest which the bullet was lodged. On returning to Melbourne, the Australian Federal Police weren't even interested in looking at the, the vest or the bullet because they wouldn't be taking the matter any further. <coughs> However, every year we come back to Australia, there's complaints put in by Tokyo, and the Federal Police board our vessels, confiscate our logbooks, our videos, um, but nothing ever really comes of it. It's more just appeasing a Japan. However, Japan can sink one of our ships, and nothing comes of it. Back in January of 2010, our fast interceptor vessel, the Adagil, was sitting idly, when it was deliberately rammed and sunk by the Japanese security vessel, the Row number 2. The last minute it turned hard to starboard and cut across the nose of our vessel, the Adagil, and as our crew were falling off the back and being hit, they were being hit with water cannons and then pushed them in, in the freezing Antarctic conditions. This was a New Zealand vessel that was struck by a Japanese vessel in Australian waters. Two investigations were done by AMSA, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, and the New Zealand counterpart, and the results were inconclusive because Japan refused to cooperate with Australia's investigation, and they also said the footage was of too poor quality. And we had three camera angles. It was the most documented incident ever in maritime history. There was a camera on the the vessel that was hit. There was a camera on the Bob Barker vessel, one of our vessels that was standing off, and also the Japanese uh, security vessel also captured at the event. But the results were inconclusive. And to this day, the captain of the security vessel, the Australian Mara No. 2, has not been questioned. But we found out a few months later, thanks to Julian Nassar and WikiLeaks, that um, <laughs> as soon as this incident occurred, the Australian government contacted the US and Japanese embassies and said, look, don't worry, regardless of any investigation into this incident, Japan's going to come away clean on this. So we know we're really on our own down there. So we we do have all the laws, rules and regulations to protect these great whales and precious marine life, but we lack the economic or political will. However, we have seen Australian customs vessels chase Uruguayan toothfish poachers out of Australia's Antarctic Territory down there. One morning I remember getting up from my, from my morning watch, I got up at 3.30am, went up to the bridge, I was on the 4-day watch, and it was just this beautiful blue sky day, surrounded in icebergs, and some of them were 9 10 kilometers long, 30 40 meters high, and the whole horizon was just covered in them. And in amongst all these pods of chunks of beautiful ice were just pods and pods of minky, fin, blue whales, humpback whales, and chunks of ice with Adelie penguins on them and orcas going through, like the wolves of the sea that they are. It really gave me a taste for, I guess, what this planet could be if we lived peace and harmony with it and what it it probably used to be like. And it gives you, when you see that, it really makes it very easy to do whatever you can to protect places like Antarctica. Uh, And I believe that Antarctica should be left alone. Uh, I wish that Seachever would never have to go down there. I wish no one was down there. It should be just there. We won places that we just know are far enough away that can just let nature be. And this is a memory that I'll definitely take to my grave that uh, will always sit there to fuel the work that I do. However, I must add, these same humpback whales that will be targeted by the Japanese Whaling Fleet this year, they pose a new threat. And that's in the form of a new Massive gas hub being proposed off James Price Point, which is just north of Broome in Western Australia. The project is called Browse LNG. Former Greens leader Bob Brown and I have just returned from Broome on board the Steve Earl and have seen firsthand what Australians stand to lose in one of the world's last wilderness areas, the Kimberley. It's on a pristine patch of coastline and oil and gas operator Woodside Petroleum and Joint Venture Partners, BHP Billovan, Shell, Mitsui want to put a massive LNG gas factory right through the middle of the world's largest humpback whale nursery. We will see a massive breakwater and jetty built to accommodate over 1,400 ships. Massive tankers per year that will travel right through the nursery. And we saw whales less than a kilometre off the proposed site, which has been complete contradiction to what Woodside is putting out. So mothers and calves nursing their young and they're saying it's a migration route but we saw nursing going on right there off the proposed site. This is going to have a devastating effect on the impact of the population of the Humpback whales through boat drop, noise pollution and water turbidity. Not to mention the effect on the local turtle and dugong population through the huge dredging that's going to take place. You're going to see dugongs and turtles Starving simply because they're not going to have any seagrass to eat. Now we would not allow massive tankers to come through a human nursery, and neither should we allow this gas factory to go ahead through the largest humpback whale nursery. It gives you an idea of the size of the gas hub that they're already putting in, and they're marking it out, even though they don't have federal (coughs) approval. It's more economically viable for the gas hub to go someplace else. That's right off James Price Point. But most importantly, the gas hub can go someplace else, but these whales and their nursery cannot. The oceans cover two-thirds of the Earth's surface. Therefore, this is really planet ocean, it's not planet Earth. Up to 80% of every breath that we take sitting in this theatre here comes from our oceans. However, our oceans are dying. Due to overfishing, marine pollution through plastic and agricultural runoff, and also the ocean acidification through increasing carbon emissions. I believe the single most important thing humanity should be focusing on is the battle to save our oceans. All the cures in the world will not save us if we do not fix the problem with our oceans. And setting aside Antarctica as a World Heritage Acid Area is one of those. It's definitely a step in the right direction. Ideally sea shepherds should we not be down in Antarctica as I mentioned before. The government should be. Shepherd's vision would be one day we were replaced by an international policing body to patrol and protect our oceans. That's what the neighbours of the world should be doing, is protecting our oceans. In honouring Captain Paul Watson, Bob spoke about before, I'd like to share with you one of his brilliant yet very simple analogies that I hope you'll understand, and also hope you can share with your friends and family that probably aren't really that minded in terms of conservation that will give you a bit more of an understanding about the importance that we rely on nature. We're all currently on board a spaceship. Let's call it Spaceship Ocean. And like any spaceship, there's passengers and there's crew. The crew run this ship. The worms, the insects, the birds, the beetles, the sharks, the whales, the plankton. They give us the air we breathe. They regulate our climate. They take care of our waste. We're just the passengers. We're just having a good time, but at the moment it's at the expense of the crew. We've got to protect the crew or we're in big trouble. So although our clients are whales, dolphins, sharks, sea turtles, ultimately what we do is for humanity and for people. However, given the reliance to be placed on nature, governments still place the economy over the ecology. And less than 1% of every charitable dollar goes towards the environment. It all goes towards humanitarian. I'm not saying for a minute we should stop giving money to humanitarian causes, but we need to dip a bit deeper when it comes to the environment if we want to save ourselves. And I believe being a conservationist is something that shouldn't be rare or unique. It shouldn't just be, oh, this person or that person is a conservationist. It's about living in peace and harmony with the natural world, about having our kids growing up with the wonders of nature that we've enjoyed, having clean air, having clean... Clean water, fresh water. Surely that's something we all want. That should be mainstream. It should be part of our DNA. It should be something that we do every day. Sea Shepherd has some of the most amazing supporters. People like Richard Dean Anderson. That's on, he's on the Sea Shepherd Board of Directors. We have Pierce Brosnan and Sean Connery on our Sea Shepherd Board of Advisors. And William Shatner and Christian Bale as supporters. Hang on. That means we've got... MacGyver, T. James Pond, Captain Kirk, and Batman. Five and efforts years. How can we lose?
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff. So, uh, it's your turn. Uh, because of the steep incline here, um, we're going to bunch the questions. Is there anybody who'd like to start? Um, there's a gentleman here. This one.
6: Richard Bronosky from the University.
0: Uh, I've watched Happy Feet with uh, 84 times
3: with, with my young granddaughter. <laughs> I'd like to see more films like that because it, it does uh, give our youth some perspective about what's going on. Two questions quickly. jillian is China or the Republic of Korea involved or? look like getting involved in in, uh,
0: exploitation or taking land in the Antarctic? And secondly, what sort of precedent does it set that the Australian government is so gutless that it can't stop uh, the the, the depredation of our claimed territorial seas in the South? Doesn't this weaken our case in international jurisdictions?
2: Um, Thank you, Richard. Um, firstly, um, uh, I believe China and Korea are parties and uh, consultative parties to the Antarctic Treaty system, um, but they, um, they are not claimants. And they would, I think, have an interest in the long-term exploitation were that to be possible. Um, but that is absolutely not possible as members of any way of the treaty system because of the uh, Madrid Protocol which has placed a, an effectively a moratorium on, uh, on exploitation. So, for the moment, that's really out of consideration. Um, So far as the weakening of Australia's territorial claim is concerned, that's a really, really difficult question to answer. Um, But it's a very important one, because uh, uh, from a a legal perspective, if you don't um, carry out the acts of a sovereign in relation to the territory you claim, eventually that claim becomes weaker. Now... The Article 4 that I mentioned before is that magical provision which says that no prejudice can come to Australia's claim by its activities or non-activities within the context of the Antarctic Treaty System. So essentially we've got a neutrality or without prejudice provision. But one of the questions that inevitably will be asked is if eventually the treaty system comes to an end can you really go back to 1959 as though nothing had happened? And that's where your question really is going to start to bite. And that is why um, when I, I did in fact go to Antarctica for three months over the summer season, um, I was what was known as a round-tripper. Or for those of you who remember those sweet jaffers. I asked what this was when I first got on board the iceberg and they wouldn't tell me initially, but by about day three, they said a a Jaffa is just another F academic. (laughs) 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 But, uh, so I did go to Antarctica, and one of the reasons I went was because the Minister for Science, Barry Jones, who took a great interest in Antarctic uh, science in particular, was saying to me, uh, we're building all these buildings down there, and we've got plumbers and carpenters and, and electricians, but we haven't got any PhDs down there. What's going on? And so I was really going down there to, to look at the policy. But the reason the question was so important is that we have been building in Antarctica because that consolidates our claim to territory if and when the Antarctic Treaty itself collapses. So your question is a very important one. Difficult to know where that tipping point is.
0: Uh, I think uh, yes, and then a clutch up uh, here and in the front.
6: Um, mr. Hansen Sorry, I just, uh, yeah um, how does if at all the Japanese violation um, of, of the treaty how does it show weakness in the
2: Antarctic Treaty if at all
5: how does it show weakness
2: yeah in the Antarctic treaty
5: well, all I can stipulate talk about is how we've basically looking at the uh, the different breaches that they do in terms of they refuel south of 60 degrees um, I believe that you're not know, allowed to bear arms in Antarctica. We've witnessed armed Japanese Coast Guard operating in Antarctica throwing concussion grenades and holstering arms. In terms of how that weakness weakens the treaty, I'm not sure. But
3: can it be more
5: effectively managed? I think that Sea Shepherd shouldn't be down there. I think that there should be uh, you know, an international policing body that protects Antarctica. You know,
0: Gillian said something about the Court of Justice
2: going on. The, the interesting thing that perhaps is not understood is that the, the Antarctic Treaty does not cover whales. They are covered by the International Whaling Convention and that yes. is why the action that Australia is bringing before the International Court is, is, un, is within the terms of the Whaling Convention not dependent upon Australia's claim to sovereignty. So it's a very clever claim in that yes. sense. But uh, that's why in a way the answer to your question is the Antarctic Treaty does not have jurisdiction over whales.
5: But in terms of armed personnel in in the and, oh, re- and refuelling south of
2: 60
6: degrees. Good point. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, two questions. Uh, firstly, in terms of uh, you were mentioning about uh, Jeff uh, the, the and uh, the, the Galapagos Islands and the problems with tourists and trashing the place. I'm just wondering what the current situation is with. Um, tourism guidelines and if there are any proposals for more green or sustainable tourism for Antarctica in the future because that would seem to be a way to uh, um, put off any uh, say mineral exploitation if there's enough money to be made from uh, ecotourism that you think that might um, uh, keep some of the countries away especially since the Arctic's probably going to melt first and Russia and the rest of the countries probably going to mine the f- sea floor up there first and secondly uh, uh, we have a doctor on the, the, the board here. Just wondering, crew oil seems to be very popular these days, replacing fish oil. Is there any uh, problems with uh, over exploitation of the crew resources down there to keep us healthy?
0: I think it would be really useful to uh, talk about this body, uh, the International Association of Tourism Operators. Uh, I mean, who are they and um, how are they constituted? What's their, what's their legal status? Um, they're the regulatory body, as I understand it, uh, that, that decides numbers and, and types of tourism. Who are they? Well, well
2: It's a voluntary association, I think, and, uh, but it's, uh, the Antarctic Treaty does have a number of recommendations that deal with tourism, and they have established a code of conduct, and that conduct is, is uh, subject to inspection but it's a relatively weak code and the great concern is not only the damage that can be done but the damage by individual tourists and plastics and all the things that have been talked about but the other question is that, uh, that one day there will be a ship with 4,000 people on it and there will be absolutely no capacity to, um, to rescue those people on board mm. um, I, I feel this particularly because you might remember that uh, some years ago the Nella Dan was sunk Um, I was on the investigating body for the government in relation to that, and it was absolutely shocking that this beautiful old boat, uh, quite strong, quite old, would found itself in an ice floe, and the ice simply crunches up around the boat, swallows it up, and sinks it. Mm. But one day, we're going to have a very, very major accident, and there is no uh, logistical capacity to rescue those uh, tourists. So there are various ways of looking at it. but, But in short, to answer your question, there is a mechanism uh, control and management through the uh, various associations for tourism and Antarctic tourism, but uh, it is very very—it's managed with a very light hand, and there are lots of dangers that we expect in the future.
0: And this is an industry body. Yes. Uh, it's a bit like
2: allowing
1: goats to look after, after a garden, isn't
2: it? It's very fragile, very weak. Mm. But Bob knows the other. There's also the, uh,
5: oh. the uh, potential of an oil spill as well. That's exactly you know, And yeah. there's no, no infrastructure there to clean it up
4: much wiser to keep the uh, whale nursery off the Kimberley coast and have tourists um, looking at that rather than a gas factory but um, uh, that's an option that's not even being looked at adequately at the moment Uh, when it comes to krill oil uh, look, uh, try almond oil, poppy seed oil, uh, canola if if necessary Flaxseed, chia? Why on earth uh, uh, go through your life without krill oil, you'll live as long
0: advice, Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> there is another... Well, uh, there is a question... Yes. yes. What, what I should say yep. there Please.
4: is the Norwegians have now got a massive vacuum cleaner to go down to Antarctica and simply suck it all up. Right the whales can wait uh, and tr- uh, turn it into all sorts of products for humanity. We're the ultimate predator. And uh, that's the sort of activity that has to be taken on uh, in a much more vigorous fashion it's mining for krill, of course, uh, Then we have governments uh, prepared to do. Uh, bring back Bob Hawke.
5: Um, j- just on that, it's even been used to feed chickens and pigs and made into, like, a protein paste. Um, the reality is our oceans are our life support system and krill's the basis of life in our oceans. We're, there's alternatives to krill oil, but there's no alternatives to, to oxygen from our ocean. Um, that's as simple as that.
6: Hi, I um, um, would like to, I guess, learn, hear
0: a bit more about what World Heritage designation would actually do uh, to protect Antarctica, that the Treaty or Environmental Protocol can't do, um, and why not put more efforts into with governments, not just the Australian government, but governments around the world that are part of the Antarctic Treaty System, um, to ensuring that the treaty and the protocol are used more effectively. Um, and a second question. Just related to the tactics of um, Sea Shepherd, wouldn't you be concerned uh, with your tactics of fouling propellers that if you actually were successful and then there was a major accident that you'd actually cause an oil spill in Antarctica?
4: Mm. Well, I can answer the first one. Look, um, World Heritage uh, listing, World Park listing is not going to save Antarctica. Uh, if we human beings can't get ourselves into a much more respectful relationship with this planet upon him, uh, and its biosphere upon which we entirely depend. That's why I'm an advocate, by the way, of global uh, democracy and a global parliament, to be able to look after the global com- uh, commons in a way that uh, national governments won't do. Uh, and that should be on the, uh, the, uh, at the top of the agenda for Democrats. Uh, around this planet in an age where we're already living way beyond the living resources potential to replenish Uh, and we're at seven billion heading for nine to ten billion within the lifetime that uh, many of the people in this lecture hall two and a half billion when I came onto the planet, seven billion now and that's uh, headed for a fifty percent increase in in, uh, potentially uh, at the worst uh, in the rest of this century. So um, it's, it's not uh, one or the other, uh, both. Uh, what we do know is the World Heritage status in the minds of, of people um, uh, gives it a protective, uh, a conscious protective value which uh, perhaps it doesn't have at the moment. And when there's, there's 50 or so signatories or uh, supplicants to the Antarctic Treaty arrangement, there's 189, 190 nearly all the world's countries to the World Heritage Convention so it's not either or, and the second one's not going to protect Antarctica um, uh, if uh, we um, aren't much more vigorous about it. Uh, It does though through the United Nations give the opportunity uh, against some future infractor for example of the minerals regime to uh, take action to um, by the community of nations to bring that that uh, person who goes down there with a an oil rig and uh, three or four naval boats uh, that country into into line. What, what, what type of action? Do they take? Um, same sort of action that uh, is taken in intervention in in wars at the moment. You send a peacekeeping force and you prevent it from taking place. Look. Um, you know, what's your and, no, I'm saying if somebody militarises Antarctica at the moment, we have no answer to it. If you've got a better answer than um, uh, the community of nations saying, well, we're bigger than you are, withdraw. I don't know what it is. It's, it's, um, that's the reality of the potential for Antarctica. We've got politicians in Australia who say we should be down there exploiting the minerals. Uh, and we've got much more powerful nations than Australia who are eyeing it off. It's part of their future exploitation. Don't worry. And we should be thinking about how we're going to handle that when it happens. Thank
1: you. Uh, This may have been partially answered since I put my hand up, but it seems like everyone's agreed that it's a bad thing to go down there and, say, do mining exploration in Antarctica. Um, But it's not obvious to me exactly what the mechanism is by which that causes bad things. If you made a list of a page of the the really bad things that could happen because of it, the, the bad processes by which you could get the bad results what would be the first two or three items oh, the, the first
4: the first one would be burn a lot of coal that's the worst thing we could do for antarctica and we're doing it at Sorry. the moment and i it's mean leading,
1: doing it's, in antarctica
4: oh, well it's it's happening. You see we can't disconnect An- antarctica from our current activities we can't do that and we're about to exploit uh, massive coal deposits in queensland Uh, which are going to be burnt elsewhere in the world, which are going to uh, lead to further acidification of the ocean, that's threatening krill and uh, to warming of the atmosphere that's threatening the whole Antarctic ecosystem. Uh, And we've got to be real about this. I don't think gunboats are are, intriguing. What do we do about uh, a a military effort? But we are part of Australia um, world's worst Per capita polluters except for perhaps Brunei in terms of greenhouse gases are uh, every day threatening Antarctica very directly for centuries to come and and uh, we've got to think about putting a stop to that.
2: Can I, can I just try a kay. short answer?
4: Yeah, Did this, That wasn't an argument against doing things in Antarctica? No, certainly. Right. Okay.
2: Well I wonder if I could just put a more positive view of this. Uh, in relation, really, to the question about, you know, what are, what are the legal mechanisms in international law to deal with this problem? And um, as Bob has described, there are the mechanisms through the Security Council, etc., to act. But I don't ever, I don't think that's ever going to happen. And the reason why the Antarctic Treaty System has been so successful is that you create normative behaviour, you create cultures that make. Uh, the uh, defined wrongful acts simply unacceptable at a political level mm-hmm. and that is why the Japanese behaviour is so out of line. In other words, most states most of the time abide by the principles and as we develop from the very simple agreement to the very sophisticated one, so I think we will actually get there on tourism. We've effectively banned mining. Um, now, I think, it, I think it very unlikely that that the political pressure will be such as to unscramble that, that moratorium. I think the pressure to keep it there will become stronger because the normative, the, the creation of the culture that, Bob, you've been so influential in creating will in fact be the means by which the ap- apocalypse never, uh, never arises. I'm much more positive about creating a new world approach to the environment that although we're not achieving everything that one would want to achieve, certainly in relation to climate change, all management of the oceans, we, we have to accept that we've come so far in the last, uh, let's say the years since the UN uh, Treaty, uh, the Law of the Sea Convention. I think what has been achieved in terms of uh, normative behavior across the globe in that time. So I'm really much more optimistic about the capacity of, of, of a community regulation to ultimately create an environment in which only the mavericks will, will pop up occasionally and they will ultimately be managed
0: spurred on by developments in the Arctic which are worrying, to put it mm. simply. Rapid rise in temperature, scramble of states for resources, I mean exactly um, the negative mm. model of
2: what is in
1: Antarctica. is, I guess, as much a comment now given the previous uh, questions, but um, the issue of World Heritage Nomination, it's become a can of worms and a victim of success in many respects. In many countries around the world now have seen a dramatic increase or significant increase in tourism levels because of World Heritage Nomination. Um, and so I'm kind of concerned whether that that proposal, how well it's being thought out and how well it's being put forward, in the sense of 100 books will be coffee table books will come out a year after World Heritage Nomination, if it ever happened for Antarctica, would would, uh, would be sort of published around the world. So is there... A serious discussion around these kind of contradictions, these paradoxes of tourism. And World Heritage requires a very specific management plan and, and sort of jurisdiction process and, and program that gets put in place. Is there any real robust conversation about the paradoxes and the ways of managing and, and thinking about those and looking at other places around the world and how they've dealt with those? For example, somewhere like Thailand sacrifices a few islands for tourism to preserve other areas. Those kind of discussions happening.
4: No, there's no discussion at all, except by the Green. Nothing. There's nothing. No discussion on Antarctica in the National Parliament whatsoever, except uh, to uh, uh, use the um, mechanisms of politics to turn a blind eye to the illegal behaviour of Japanese fishing ships and, and Patagonian uh, toothfishers as well. Uh, it's off the agenda, and that's why I think this is a terrific forum. Uh, the the um the answers to the questions, the detailed questions you have there, I mean a process for um, World Heritage nomination would take many years and they'd have to be ironed out and I suspect it wouldn't get there because there would be people throwing up uh, objections, it only take one nation to object and it's off, hmm. but we've got to try.
0: Yes, sir? Thank you, my question is from uh,
5: Professor John Kinn. Uh to what extent do you think that uh, Antarctica benefits from the current stateless situation in the region and do you think that there is a need for a form of political setting in the region to, to keep it safe a sort of a new form of democracy or something like this
0: that's for tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow we're having a, a quiet discussion about uh, all of this but I you know, no, I'd, I'd like to put to it back uh, to, to, to to the, the speakers. <throat> I I also <throat> thought that uh, Gillian introduced this really interesting idea right at the outset that um, when you first look at the governing and legal arrangements, they look incredibly weak, and yet they prove to be durable. Mm. Uh, The question is, um, what are the prospects for reform and strengthening of this apparently weak set of overlapping jurisdictions Mm -hmm. and structures that defy most textbook accounts uh, of international politics and law and territorial state government. I'm deflecting the question in Gillian's direction, but But I, I, I wonder... I mean, if you had to list one, two, or three reforms in the coming period in matters of law and government, where would you, if you could
5: where would you um,
0: place your energies?
2: Um, Well, I'd certainly like to see the voting system within the Antarctic Treaty system um, be based on on majority votes and a more effective organizational structure. I think that if we were able to build a proper um, structure, and that is now in the very early stages, I think if we can support that and develop it, then we will be creating... Um, a a a specific purpose-built governance structure for managing the region that will be pretty much unstoppable. I think it will be very, very effective. Um, I very much like the idea of World Heritage listing. I I think that that's something that um, maybe uh, Mr. Brown could devote his uh, retirement to. (laughs) I think think it's it's a terrific and doable step. I think it's possible with the right leadership and the right stimulation, I'd very much like to see that. But I think what what I think will probably happen is that we will see this incremental strengthening of the Antarctic Treaty system. More and more states come in um, and the uh, mechanisms for recommendations and implementation of those recommendations or interlinked treaties will simply become stronger and in the end it will be unthinkable for a state to try to unravel it and we will have better systems of inspection and management of fisheries and and of the the tourist industry. I don't think we will see uh, minerals exploitation in Antarctica.
0: There's a serious um, laziness problem, is there not, um, in parties to the treaty. I I have read one estimate that um, the documentation that's required, for example, in inspections, some 50% of states actually never deliver. And, 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 and many of the, the transactions of these institutions are opaque, are they not? Even the Parliament, the ATCM, I think uh, there was an exception in Edinburgh, um,
6: and I don't know how it was in Hobart,
0: but I mean, they're not open, it's not an open no. parliamentary forum.
2: I agree with everything that you're saying, um, uh, because the great difficulty is the juristic, uh, jurisprudential view of the state in relation to the Antarctic Treaty. And Australia claims 42%. It doesn't want open discussion of these matters. It wants a closed uh, environment. But the the, the demands for that to change are growing, and the uh, Antarctic Treaty The the, uh, Antarctic Marine Living Resources uh, Commission and Secretariat is now much more open. Mm. The SCAR scientific committee that, that, uh, that provides scientific evidence into the Antarctic Treaty System is relatively open. That's open to the entire scientific community. So the changes are occurring. Um, but they're incremental, and they, as I say, if you looked at it only in this slice of time, you'd say it's a fragile and ineffective organization. But in reality, it's, it's uh, achieved things that could never otherwise have been achieved. In the past decades, you've simply have fought wars over it. But that's not going to happen. Um, and the inspection system does happen. I was on, uh, on the iceberg when we did an inspection of the Russian station. Um, but I have to say, in all honesty, the Russians had been advised before we got there, and as we came in, their ships went out with whales and seals on board, and we took photographs of that. So that was in 1986. So it was a mm. long time ago. That was the mor- um,
5: when the moratorium came in. Sorry. That was when the global moratorium exactly, came in. Exactly. It was
2: just about in time, but it was a pretty scandalous. And bearing process but that mm-hmm. I'm told by my colleagues is now a much um, a better system and inspections are genuine inspections and mm-hmm. so I guess I'm constantly repeating the, the same point but we see incremental development and advance with every year or, but it remains a, a, a system open to significant criticism particularly the point about secrecy mm-hmm.
1: there's a question here
3: thank you uh, has anybody uh, is it worthwhile having a, a thought experiment about um, in Antarctic issues becoming part of the upcoming federal election? I'm just thinking, in, what springs to mind for me is that in Tasmania, the Franklin Dam back in the 80s, uh, damming that Franklin River became part of the election campaign that brought the whole government in uh, as an environmental issue. Uh, And also, um, just recently, Australia has opened up this big maritime park, which is sort of related as well. And even Australian initiatives at a world level, Australia is seen to be a a very progressive and green country in many ways. And uh, we also represent the southern hemisphere a certain amount, um, iconically. You're calling for an
0: Antarctic party.
3: Well, or just making it an issue. Uh, And it may well be, uh, because it stands in for (coughs) destruction of the earth generally, Mm -hmm. and food security and a whole lot of other issues.
4: Briefly. Well, Well, um, I tried to get it onto the agenda last election. I mean, it's just uh, not on the agenda until the people are moving on it and uh, thank God for Sea Shepherd because it's a non-government organisation which is in fact, fact a de facto policing one of the things about Antarctica is it does have a quite a, a miraculous treaty organisation and set of laws but no police and, uh, and not likely to but I think they have to, the, um, there has to be some entertainment of how for example there's massive illegal fishing uh, south of the Antarctic Circle at the moment. Um, you know, the remnants of long line fishes are all over the ocean floor down there and nobody's doing anything about it. Mm. So um, it's, a, it's a wild west approach to the fisheries that's occurring at the moment. But we're all asleep at the wheel. And uh, how to get it onto the agenda, uh, I ask you, one thing I, I might say though, um, the project, uh, the Woodside $45 billion gas factory on the Kimberley coast, which is very much tied up to Antarctica. Because wh- before I went up there with Sea Shepherd, I didn't realise this fact. That's the home of the whales. They visit Antarctica, they conceive and, uh, and they give birth in, there and off Morton, um, off, off the uh, Harvey Bay in, the, in Queensland, but it's the, the bigger nursery off the northwest coast. It's an Antarctic sanctuary and here we are entertaining the, the idea of a, of a massive break wall and, and big gas ships coming in and out. If that proceeds I think there will be somewhat of a rebellion by uh, voters. is not at that stage at the moment but uh, if we get a 4,000 people on a ship down there and um, the consequences of that or even a massive oil spill then it will. It seems that as a species we're, uh, we've got ourselves uh, into the position where we will react to a catastrophe uh, we're not very good at um, warding off the potential for that but um, you know, there's good things about Antarctica but um, one of them is knocking it onto the political agenda Thank you
3: and thank you to the panel it's been interesting um, first question I've got two First question: how did, how did Australia get 42% of this theoretical 42%? Um, uh,
2: the United Kingdom had made done much of the exploration and claimed the bulk of Antarctica, and uh, it um, in '33 passed that title that it claimed to Antarctica in part to New Zealand and to Australia, so that it kept the, if you can think of the map, through the uh, Tierra del Fuego, uh, those uh, it kept that through the Falklands, or Malvinas, depending on your point of view, um, but they, they kept that uh, sector claim, but decided that they would pass on the territorial claims that they had made to Australia and New Zealand. And what Australia did from then was to continue to explore and to settle particular um, uh, claims and bases within the 42%. So um, I think the position in, in international law is that you must effectively occupy the territory that you can want validly to claim. And Australia clearly has not effectively occupied 42% of Antarctica. So I think the better legal position would would always be that if you took the legal uh, cut-off point of 1959, you could probably say that Australia has a fair claim to the area around its bases where it is explored uh, and up to a point exploited. Um, But that's the the legal history. Thank
3: Thank you my other question is is it not possible that rather than the treaty working so well that there has been no immediate economic benefits of doing anything down there it's a terribly difficult area to work to work in and therefore nobody's gone down there yet
2: well, interestingly, if you, if you look at the history of Australia, um, if people love to say Australia was settled uh, on the sheep's back. It, it wasn't actually, it was settled on, yeah. on, on the whales. It That's was... Right. Um, the, the shipping went down into the southern Antarctic waters um, uh, for whaling um, oils. Um, and that continued, as you know, the very early history of Australia. So um, there was always an economic interest in Antarctica. And if you read those who were concerned about this at a political level in the 20s and 30s, and the the interest in Antarctic exploration, uh, Morrison obviously in particular, but support for the British uh, uh, exploration as well, they were very often driven at a political level by the need to get coal or to secure sea lanes in the Southern Ocean. There were all sorts of interests, economic and security, that were well recognized. Um, uh, there was, uh, 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 in, the, in the 80s, a very strong interest in minerals exploration and exploitation, and there'd been the negotiation of the um, Law of the Sea Convention, the deep sea bed exploration for mining, and there was a sense at that time politically that we should ex- adopt the same sort of notions in relation to Antarctica, but back again with the leadership of Mr. Hawke, absolutely failed, and, uh, and that was an, an astonishing achievement by one prime minister of, of one nation, but he did achieve it. Um, And since that time, the interest in the economic development has has really not been there. It's a rather curious, um, rather ironic phenomenon that maybe the pressures off Antarctica, because we now have global warming in the the Arctic and and greater opportunities for Arctic exploration um, at a feasible level. Much of it's going to depend on feasibility, um, but my own hope uh, is and belief is that as the uh, normative position that Antarctica is I, it cannot be exploited for minerals purposes. Um, then that will become simply an accepted legal position that will not be changed. At least, I mean, I cannot see an end to that. I really do believe that uh, that uh, we will have moved well past uh, coal and minerals exploration in Antarctica over the next decades. Mm-hmm. Thank
0: you. C- could could we end uh, um, with me asking the three of you? Uh, very briefly, to say something about the importance of science. I mean, one of the really unusual things about this continent and Mm -hmm. the politics Mm -hmm. and law of of Antarctica is the role that that scientists have played. We mentioned mentioned that in the championing of the International Mm -hmm. Geophysical Year and then the treaty itself. How how important for each of you, just, you know, in the vernacular, how important is... um, uh, the scientific, scientific. research that's, that's being done on the continent. For me, uh, just to mention a few things at random, I learned about sea cucumbers, you know, that make an annual journey um, to the North Pole. I learned that the ozone uh, hole is actually not um, shrinking, and i learned most recently to my astonishment that we think of it as a frozen continent and all the imagery of antarctica and yet it turns out that there is something like 400 uh, subglacial lakes that are, it looks as though they're interconnected by rivers so actually it's a continent that sits sits on a lake which rather forces us to rethink the whole thing well that's uh, what i understand it's, It. Uh, creates a certain deep fascination with the continent. Also, also there are many early, early warning signals that are mm-hmm. coming from science. How is it for, for the the three of you? We have no scientists here. We have a great scientist in the audience who's going to talk tomorrow who is keeping quiet
5: for the moment. But how important is, uh, what did you learn from the science of the... I think from a number of levels, scientists is very important. I mean, look at people like David Attenborough he relies on the, the scientists to be able to you know, give him all that information that he can present and humanise the animal story so we can fall in love with nature and then we want to protect things we love. I also think that Antarctica is a bit like the canary in the coal mine and the scientists there is imperative to be able to tell us the state of the impact that what we're doing every day and the choices we make um, in terms of you know, mining and in, in terms of the things we use and the things we eat um, and their carbon footprint on the effect that it's having on Antarctica. Uh, I think you can only watch an, an Antarctic documentary and, and just fall in love with the place and scientists play a key role in, in keeping us up to date on how we're on track and at the moment we're we're not looking too good but I think that um, yeah, scientists play a big role in that.
4: Well, Just phenomenal and um, again I'm a hobartian and the science is. Um, a lot of it's being done out of Hobart, and it's being defunded at the moment. They're cutting the funding to it, and uh, that's how uh, how much off the record uh, Antarctica is. Uh, it's so important to monitoring how the planet's been in the past and how it may be in the future if we human beings can't respect the biosphere much more than we do. Mm. By the way, the Antarctic Ocean Alliance you'll find their website. Last year brought out a proposal for 40% of these seas to be protected in marine reserves, with brilliant Mm. science behind that, of the ecosystems in Antarctica. And I'd recommend everybody have a look at that, uh, because there's a... a, uh, including the biggest marine reserve on Earth, and that's saying something, um, in the uh, Ross Sea. Uh, it's, it's just uh, lovely to look at and uh, I'd recommend everybody have a look at that website if you want to see uh, some of the uh, discoveries being made by science and that that is just fascinating Antarctic Ocean Alliance
0: And Gillian um, was it a scientist who called you a Jaffa? <laughs> <laughs> yes it
2: was Yes um well, as a lawyer, of course, one of the wonderful things about science is that you can make your case with the evidence. You need to convince people, and to do that, and to, to achieve all the things that, that um, have been spoken about tonight, you need the scientific evidence. With that, you can build the political case, and with that, to build the culture that will protect the area. And so that uh, I see science as, as performing that role. I have to say that my time in Antarctica... Um, it didn't leave me particularly fascinated by science but much more with the animal life mm. in Antarctica mm. and by the art, because I went down with art, the re- artists in residence on the ship uh, and by the poetry and, and the literature, the social sciences that can actually be developed in Antarctica are quite remarkable. And I often wish that I'd gone down with uh, David Williamson who could have written a play about the psychology of being with a very small number of people for a very long time in close proximity. So, uh, but science it's absolutely uh, dri- drives our, our understanding and supports the arguments that we would make for protection of this extraordinarily beautiful part of the planet.
5: So with being in Antarctica, Gillian, what would you like to see happen with the place? Well, well
2: I wouldn't go quite as far as you would. I, I <laughs> in the sense that I wouldn't create it as a wilderness and have nobody allowed down there. Mm. I, I feel that we the humans share the planet too. Yeah. And I, I would like to see it properly governed, yeah. uh, preserved and managed for, for exactly the ecological balance that you're talking about, the respectfulness that Bob's talking about. But, but but a system that allowed us to go down in an appropriate and respectful way, however that's defined. Yeah. So that we, it's so stimulating to be in such a beautiful environment mm. with the animals, yeah. uh, the mammals and the fish. I, I remember one day I broke. You're not allowed to leave the base without permission of the commander, and I was pr- pretty pissed off with all the. <laughs> The politics of a small group of people and I was just tired of it and it was a brilliant sunny day and I'd got all the equipment so I just head off headed off on a walk across the rocks miles and miles out from Mawson base and I sat on a rock that had absorbed some heat and could look at the, the lichens or lichens on the rock marvelling at that and as I was looking at that up poked this little velvety nose of a seal and it could smell me. I presumably didn't smell very good. And the two of us communed for I don't know how long, an hour, an hour and a half. And I'll never forget that moment. I'm a city slicker and a lawyer, but for me it was an enormously moving moment of connection between a human being and and one of these animals that must have thought me quite mysterious. Well, I eventually went back to the base and got very told off by the commander, uh, and survived to tell the tale. But I do believe that by by allowing, by preserving this environment for yeah. our children and future generations, we can create exactly the environment that Bob is talking about is needing where we respect yeah. the con- the environment, the planet in which we live.
5: Yeah. And with World Heritage Listing, uh, I, I believe that's something you, you believe is a solution to what uh, we can head towards. Um, <laughs> is that something that NGOs and the public around the world can... Start to push and lobby governments to try and get on the agenda?
4: They yeah, certainly can, and, and we all can. I mean, if, if um, everybody here wrote to their local member of federal parliament and said, What have you done about World Heritage listing? Uh, it would get a lot of research done down in Canberra and in their offices because it's just not on the agenda. Um, Protection of Antarctica, uh, and just finally, the, the Franklin River, we had this great debate uh, during the the troubles down there uh, about getting people down to see it and um, the the general consensus was it was better that it be loved to death than hated to death Mm -hmm. through a series of dams and and so there is uh, that beautiful story we've just heard about the communion between a human being and a seal that obviously seven billion people can't go to Antarctica Mm -hmm. and a lot of the experience will be vicarious but for those people who do go, I, I think almost universally come back wanting to protect the place
0: Uh, I think on that note um, I'd like to uh, thank uh, Gillian Triggs, Bob Brown and and Jeff Hansen Uh, this, I think at the university was something of an experiment um, in thinking that uh, Antarctica is itself a very major political and legal experiment um, in a very fragile uh, part of the biosphere Um, an experiment that's pretty poorly understood uh, publicly, yeah. but what I learned tonight, and I hope you felt the same in the audience uh, and enjoyed it as much as I did, is, is that uh, there's a lot at stake and uh, actually public understanding of this continent uh, is vital for for uh, deciding or co-deciding its future. Um, would you please uh, say thanks to the three speakers and thank you